All right. We like to ask chefs to name five of something. So for you, why don't you name five things you forage in Seattle? Five things I forage. Porcinis, chanterelles, morels, matzatakes, milk caps. I can keep going, but... I love it. That's perfect. You sound good. Hey, everyone. I'm Cappy, and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm a chef by trade and hospitality professional. By day, I head up Rachel Ray's culinary operations and co-founded her cooking and kids charity called Yummo. Five years ago, I had the idea to put together a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Hence, the name Beyond the Plate. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you listened before, we're so glad you're back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or, like the chefs we feature, make a difference in your community. And we're grateful to our partners who make this podcast a reality. With that... This episode is brought to you by our lovely, beautiful, eye-catching, so well-designed merchandise. Heard. How humble of you, Cappy. Heard is actually on a lot of our gear, by the way. True. But in all seriousness, on Friday, the other day, I was walking in the supermarket with a Beyond the Plate sweatshirt, the new navy one you got me with white, special limited edition. I understand that. A very nice lady came up to me and says, what's Beyond the Plate? I am the biggest foodie out there. Uh, and I told her, I told her about the podcast and she was like, oh my gosh, this is great. I'm just getting into podcasts. I'm going to listen. It must have had a five minute talk in the aisle. So I, love I, I think maybe if she's now listening and hears this, she needs to go get herself some of our beautiful, eye-catching, so well-designed merchandise. Yeah, on the plate merch, helping Ian make friends in the grocery store. <laughs> well, it's funny you told me that story because we didn't talk about this. I went to Chef Sarah Grunberg, who, fingers crossed, will be on the podcast this season. She had a book launch party for her new book called Listen to Your Vegetables, and I walked into the party wearing my herd hat, and someone like ran up to me. This woman's like, what is that hat? I saw someone else wearing this T-shirt in a restaurant the other day. It was really funny. I was kind of flattered. Well, it's cool gear. Got to get some. Yeah, it is. In any regard, we love our merch and others seem to as well. So if you want to check out our super soft T-shirts, hoodies, and hats, you can find the link in your podcast player or go to our website, beyondtheplaypodcast.com. Again, that's beyondtheplaypodcast.com. Enjoy this week's episode. And don't forget to check out our Beyond the Drink series presented by Ford's Gin every other week right here on Beyond the Plate. Enjoy this week's episode. Today's guest grew up in Seattle, Washington and began his culinary journey at the age of 16. At 18, he moved to Osaka, Japan to learn the art of Japanese cuisine and worked for Michelin star rated chef Yasuhiko Sakamoto. He later returned to Washington to open a restaurant of his own and has been winning Seattle over ever since. He's competed on various Food Network shows, including Iron Chef Gauntlet and Beat Bobby Flay, where he was victorious, and has been a James Beard Foundation Award semifinalist in 2018, 19, and 2020. He's racked up plenty of accolades, ranging from Best New Restaurant in Seattle Times to Top 10 Restaurant in Seattle Magazine, and was named one of the most influential people of 2021 in Seattle Magazine. Not bad for a guy who opened a bar just five days before the shutdown of the pandemic. You likely know him from season 18 of Bravo's Top Chef in 2021, where he placed as a top three finalist and was awarded Top Chef season 18 fan favorite. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with Chef Shoda Nakajima. What's up, Chef? What's up? How you doing? How's life? Life's good. It's good. I'm looking forward to the next hour. Life is always better when I get to learn some great things from great chefs and excited. Same here. 
So where shall we start? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. <laughs> Wait, you literally opened a restaurant five days before the shutdown? Yeah. So I had, it was my first from scratch build out, a concrete box. So it was building out for two years. And then we finished building out and all approvals passed in March of 2020. So we had five days until the mandatory shutdown. Everyone says there's no like good timing or bad timing to do things. That was definitely a bad timing to do that yeah. one. <laughs> Wait, tell me about some highs and lows of 2020 then. Highs and lows. I don't know. I look at everything as a high at the end of the day because I just believe everything just happens for a reason. And I believe it actually did. But I guess in the meantime, I guess going back to 2020, I closed my restaurant I had for six years. It was a 2,500 square foot restaurant. We were doing a restaurant where we changed the menu every single day, 10 courses, 15 courses, pandemic hit. And I was building that bar too. And we we're getting into that final end. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is not going to go away right away. Because, you know, Japan has a lot of pandemics and they they last. <laughs> I'm just looking at my team. I'm like, I think you got to close a fine dining one and just try to focus on the smaller space. So we were one of the first people to get out of the city in like our restaurant. I didn't have a personal guarantee. That was one of the most lucky things I set up for myself. And then I had the mandatory shutdown. We were trying to do two go, but then I got in a car crash like a month in. I got T-boned at 45 miles an hour and I couldn't walk for about a month and a half. No way. So yeah, it was horrible. Just bad timing. Someone ran a completely red light and it was one of those, there's a turn lane with the four trucks lined up, so I couldn't see it. I'm just running a regular green light. That person's not looking up front, just... Oof. Boom. My car scooted. My car door literally fell off. Are you good now? I'm okay. Yeah, no, I'm 100% okay. I'm exercising, running every single day, great chiropractors and doctors. And I still go to physical therapy once a month to just make sure all that stuff. But I have a great doctor who's been helping me out. So All right, good. But yeah, so when that happened, I was looking at labor and I just talked to my team and I was like, I can't work. I can't brush. I can't pick up fry baskets. We're only going to lose money. Who actually wants to be here? And no one raised their hand. And I was like, cool, I think we should just close. So we closed for about two, three months. And I just went to the woods with my dog and chilled out and foraged every single day. It was actually incredible. I love that. That's like your jam, isn't it? It was. Like, I I would go out to the woods and just sleep in my car for literally three, four days. And, you know, I, I think I was really enjoying almost that nakedness, right? of shoot it's like i i felt like i had this restaurant with a lot of accolades and all this stuff and whatever i did was working out in a good way pandemic hit, i got extremely humbled with just kind of everything then i think i just wanted to feel more a little bit more in like peace in a sense just what is it and i grew up in the woods too so it's a comfort place for me like my house was in the middle of the forest and yeah and as a kid all i did was i would go pick stuff from the forest with my dog So I do the same thing as an adult. (laughs) That's so funny. Okay, so I love this quote from your dad. He says, everyone trips. It's about how fast you get back up. Well, I guess you just answered that. I was going to say, how'd you get back up? But you talked to your team. You did your relaxing thing of foraging. Before that, I was when I was running my fine dining restaurant, I was a person who drank every single night as well. Finished shift. There's a bar right there. Me and the team take a shot. Seven years, I don't think I actually took a day off from drinking. But yeah, when I closed my restaurant, all that stuff, you know, that was one of those moments. And I don't drink anymore, actually, after that. I'm one of those people who went the, you know, I think it's split into either way. And I I think it was a lot of thinking for myself, right? Okay, I'm in hospitality. I'm in this business. I'm supposed to take care of people. I'm paying my sous chef $65,000 a year. We're working relentlessly. There's no retirement plan in this business, what we're doing. It's like, what am I doing when I'm saying I'm taking care of my staff? 
or like, you know, taking care of people, but I'm not t- actually taking care of the people around me. And that's a big thinking. And when I, when I was like, okay, when I want to reopen my restaurant, I have a completely different goal in really taking care of my staff and teaching that to, I guess, my peers and industry folks of like, Hey, you got to value yourself at like, if you're a manager, 50, $60 a week or 50, $60 an hour minimum. And if you're working over that and you're not putting that in calculation, you're devaluing yourself and, you know, really, really trying to talk about that more and be, and be that voice. And I wish I would have had that help. And I think that's in my mind, that's the most hospitable thing I could be doing in the hospitality industry right now. Taking care of your people. Yeah. And like really being vocal and teaching them about it. It's like I implemented profit sharing to the businesses as well. So that way they actually, you know, it, it makes sense for them to do the business. Now they want to open more hours because of it. And it's like, cool, you guys can kind of do whatever. But that mindset of the more you do, the more you get rewarded for in a financial manner as well, because you have to start building your life. The drinking thing, was it like, was it a problem? Like you knew it was a problem or you just knew you had to like make a change in that aspect of your life? I would say it was definitely a problem. I can say it wasn't a problem, but I drank every single night for six years. But yeah, I think the reality of it was I just really wanted to face everything, right? I think when you start drinking like that and you kind of go with the flow, you avoid and you avoid accountability in so many aspects of your life from the smallest things. And for me, I just was like, I need to take responsibility for every single tiny little thing. Look at myself in the mirror, feel that energy, feel that flame and don't hide from it. Turn it into fire so I can keep going. And that's the only way I can inspire people around me and my team to try to do something again, because we can't be like this forever. And that was kind of where I was at at the time. All right. Take me back to the day in Japan, you in Chef Yasuhiko Sakamoto's kitchen. Take you back. Ooh, how did it start? Our day started from 9 a.m., but I would start. I always went an hour. I showed up an hour early for six years because that's when the produce guy comes. And my mindset was if I can get in early, I can finish my prep. I can start doing the next stuff. And then I can learn more. And then I can beat that guy. And maybe I can move up faster. How old were you when you started? I started working in restaurants when I was 15, 16. And then I moved to Japan to go chase the Michelin star dream when I was 18 and did that till I was 23. During that time, it would be, you know, we all lived upstairs together in the same, I mean, it was 10 by 10 and there's two double beds and there's four people sleeping in there. It's part of our jobs to do the laundry because you're sous chefs. Everyone sleeps together and all our plates are up there too. And it's very much that lifestyle where you, you're not drinking the Kool-Aid, you are swimming in the Kool-Aid. Did you love it though? Like at the time? I loved it. I loved every moment of it. I think I needed it, you know, the guidance. And I think just growing up and I, I think... I wasn't taking life too seriously at the time. Like, you know, I dropped out of school. I never went to junior high. I just skipped school and went to arcade centers because, I don't know, I love video games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just curious about that, like stepping into that kitchen. Yeah, I think I, I, I needed that, you know. I needed to get away from the common sense of being okay with certain things. Well, long story short, I got in a little bit of trouble. I got sent away and I came back and I started hanging out with kind of the same crew after a few months of working in restaurants. And I started working in restaurants and didn't want to go back into school because I was like, I don't know how I'm going to avoid that after if they're there. So that was kind of the thing. But, you know, I was still in the same city and I really just needed to change everything and structure everything. And I wanted to put some pressure on myself. I think that does come from dropping out early and my parents going, well, shit, you're not going to make it. It Definitely. That was one of those things that I really wanted to prove wrong in a sense for myself that, I can't actually still make it. I just got to work harder. 
when you said you got sent away, was that when you were living in Seattle or when you were in Yeah, living yeah, in okay. Seattle. Yeah. You can do anything in Japan. You can get arrested 30 times. Nothing happens in Japan in junior high. It's ridiculous. That's wild. <laughs> Yasuhiko Sakamoto, that's Dutch kitchens in Japan, right? Yeah, yeah. that kitchens yeah. in Japan. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to confirm. So yeah, going there obviously was a different shock in a sense of everything. It's very militant. I started at 8 a.m. and we would get off usually around 3 or 4 a.m. All of us have a 15-minute break in the middle of the day. Besides that 15-minute, everyone is running all day long. Wait, I start at 8 a.m., you're off at 3 or 4 p.m. for a, a quick break? A.m. No, you go. You only have a 15-minute break the whole entire day, and you go till 3 or 4 a.m. Once a week, you go till 6 a.m. to deep clean the restaurant. Oh, my gosh. And then it just restarts again. Okay, so how did that experience change you or your perspective on cooking or your approach to food? I wanted to quit every single day for like the first three months. It was so miserable. My feet hurt. Every day off I had for like the first six months, my feet hurt and I couldn't even get up. And I'm an 18-year-old kid at this time. Like I have energy, but it was so much that I just couldn't even, I just was like, I don't want to get up. Like it hurts physically hurts. Now, everything was extremely strict to the point that I start my day with cleaning my chef's shoes with a fucking brush to make sure it's clean. And, you know, it's really that mentality, but I didn't really get it. But after years, I, I started to understand why all that was important, if that makes sense. And it's really what chef's teaching you at the end of the day is the ultimate hospitality over food. And I remember this one conversation because chef would always take each person out at a time. It was 20 seats and eight chefs. And he would always take from top to bottom out, out to go grab a drink. And I remember, I think like two and a half years in, he asked me, he's like, you know why I make you use milliliters and all that stuff when you start to, you know, cut your vegetables perfectly? And I was like, I don't know, because it's a Michelin star restaurant and everything needs to be perfect. And he's like, no, I mean, yeah, kind of. But it's the fact that everyone who's cooking above you has done that position. So if it's perfect, they understand so they're going to take care of it better. And the fact that everyone in the restaurant has that pride in that dish, I have all the pride when I put it on the plate. And that's the difference of a good restaurant and a great restaurant. And I was just like, <laughs> heard, yes, chef. I'll follow you forever. Yeah, That's <laughs> yeah. so wild. Did he ever come visit you in Seattle? Yeah, he came visit. He came to visit twice when I first opened my restaurant. Gave me such a hard time. Was I was going to say, what do, you, what do you say about what you were doing at the time? At the end of the day, he was really strict. But at the end, he's like, hey, you're doing something. I took a lot from him for like, I think I really needed him at the time at my age. You know, it's like work as hard as you can be relentless. There's no such thing as mistakes. Mistakes are objective. Just keep going. Don't stop. Don't let anyone stop you type thing. That was a big motto that my chef had. And I think I just kind of relentlessly follow those like a child, if that makes sense. Totally. One of my favorite ones he has is people only achieve one to 2% of their dreams, right? The more dreams you have, the more possibilities you have. It's a lot more work, but if you keep your head down and grind, it will definitely come back. And I think those words I have believed more than anything. Like I believed in Disney movies when I was a child and just do that every single day. Yeah, that's cool. All right, let's go back to like, super early days of Shoda, like li little Shoda. Little Shoda. Little, you were born in Japan, right? I was born in Japan. And I came here to the States when I was a little under a year. So yeah, pretty much back and forth. But it's confusing because I went back for summer every year, but came back. And in junior high, I lived there for three and a half years too. So it's been a lot of back and forth for kind of family reasons. But mostly raised in Seattle. Mostly raised in Seattle. 
did your whole family initially come here when you were about one? Yeah. Yeah. My dad, my mom and brother. Yeah. My mom came with two boys. I have an older brother, spoke zero English, didn't drive a car. It was great. The stories that she has is she is one of the strongest humans that I ever know. Like, it's incredible. She came to a country called America where you need a car compared to Japan and subway stations. You know, it's with two boys who are one in three. My dad was working, I think, 100 hours a week. So he was never home. So and mom was home with you. Mom was home. Mom and dad are in Seattle still? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, still together. Got it. What's dad's line of work? Dad's line of work is IT computer. He actually gave me a book for programming when I was in third grade when I asked for a crystal making set. I remember this specifically. I remember going to myself, I'm never going to get into computers. Thinking about it now, way easier industry, but hey, yeah. here we are. <laughs> <laughs> what were family dinners like at home, like when you were young? Did mom cook? Mom cooked every single day. She would do rice, an entree, and three sides every single night for us. And I thought that was a normal thing. So definitely the reason why I love food and I cook, and that's one of my biggest hobbies and love is definitely because of my mom and dad. They love food. Like even now, if I go over and I bring over food, we're probably going to talk about food while we eat food and consistently talk about food and talk about food memories that we have and just food. That's all we talk about as a family. I love it. But dad was working a lot and he was or wasn't home for like family dinner. He would always come home for dinner for like 45 minutes and he goes back to work. So you were interested in food at an early age. You had these great dinners. Did you start to want to help mom in the kitchen when you were young? Yeah, I won't say I was like, oh, I'm going to be a chef. That's what I want to be. I like chopping stuff. I like doing simple things, but it wasn't intense. I honestly liked drawing and going outside and running around the woods with my dog a lot more than helping out in kitchens. Now, I wasn't even planning to work in kitchens, to be completely honest. I, you know, I was 15 year old. I needed to get a job. I applied at Paxson, Zoomies, Macy's. I had an eyebrow piercing. I look like a punk. like this punk little Asian <laughs> yeah. kid. Like no one would want to hire you. And then my buddy was like, "Yo, that place. If you're Japanese and you speak Japanese, they'll pay you under the table, but you got a job." And I walked in, and that night I started washing onions and dishes, and I hated it. I absolutely hated it. I wanted to quit, but then I remember my dad going, "Well, if you're not going to school, you're a grown up, and I guess you could make it on your own." And that was stuck in my head. And I was like, "Well, I guess one more day." And it just was one more day for the first six months, every single day, because I just didn't want to be there. But I didn't want to put my tail between my legs and go, hey, I'm back. <laughs> Either. Were mom and dad hard on you? Or like at the time, did it feel like they were hard on you? But in retrospect? They weren't hard on me. They were just, I think my dad is just very good at knowing what he needs to do to get me on the right path. So did something click when you're at this place 14, 15 years old, something like where you're like, actually, like, I like this. So it was the first time my mom came in. I remember that. It was a little hard with communication just in general because I was a stubborn little kid. But I still remember the face my mom made when I made her like a special in food. And I was just like, yo, I could do this for the rest of my life. And I guess I'm still doing it 18 years later. That's cool. <laughs> okay. So then at 18, you decide to go to, to culinary school in Japan. How did that decision come about? Did someone encourage you to go? There's like, some pretty good culinary programs in the Pacific Northwest, obviously here, but yes, you have the Japanese background. I think for me, it was working in Japanese restaurants in America, there's an obvious difference between the people who worked in Japan and the people who only worked over here. 
knowledge base. And that was one of those things I was like, well, if I'm going to either do this for the rest, I should go see what that is. Because I don't want to, it always felt like there was this like little upper hand that these chefs who trained in Japan had. And then there, I had this one chef who came in who worked in a Michelin star restaurant. I was like, oh, Michelin, Michelin. I'm like, what is Michelin? And I went up to the guy and I was like, I want to go work in a Michelin star restaurant in Japan too. And everyone just laughed at me. And I was like, what do you mean? What's going on? (laughs) I was like, there's no possible way an American born kid who's spoiled like you could make it in a Michelin. And it is unbelievably hard. And they were absolutely correct. It was unbelievably hard, but that was, I think a lot of those doubtful words are something that I turned into energy to when I was younger. I don't really say these words anymore. It's like, light that bitch on fire. Watch it go. Just feel it, embrace it and go. And that's something that I think I've always done as a kid. When you worked in the Michelin restaurant in Japan, was that after your culinary program? After culinary. Well, I started working midway through the culinary program. Okay. How was that culinary program? Were you? Did you love it? I loved it. It was absolutely intense. I think school should be more like that over here, to be honest. The teachers come up to you and they go, hey, if you want to learn more, they, they go to the fast kids and the good kids. And this school produces Michelin star chefs left and right. Like every graduate top tens are always, and they do, it's one of those schools. It's like every Asia competition number one, two, three are always from that school because it's an extremely competitive school and it's known for it. And I remember like teachers would come up and I'd be kind of the faster kids and they'll go, hey, if you want to learn more, just make that kid do dishes all night and take his prep and make him quit. I was like, hurt. And I remember our class was like 40 and we shrunk to 25 in a year. How long is that program? A year. A year. That's cool, man. That's wild. What was your plan after? Did you know you wanted to stay there for a little and work? Or what did you think you wanted to do? I guess the Michelin? Yeah, Michelin. I wanted to see what a Michelin star restaurant, what everything, everyone said that I couldn't do, how hard it was. It was more of a test for myself. Is it that hard? Can I actually make it? Everyone was like three weeks, four weeks for me. I got hired with five people and I'm the only one who lasted a month. Okay, so then you come back to Seattle, you open your first restaurant. You were 25 when you opened your first restaurant? 25. Okay. Yeah. What do you wish you would have known then that you know now? You really need to work and encourage people to get the results you want. At 25, I was, hey, I'm so good at cooking. I can work 140 hours a week. I don't need to sleep. Oh, front of the house scheduling, I'll take care of it. Payroll, I'll do it on a Monday. Everything I did. And it was great. I had a really loyal team. But thinking of it now, I didn't teach anyone anything, if that makes sense. I did all of it on my own for a very long time. Now I obviously have very different philosophies and teaching of, you know, never point out anything negative. It doesn't help. The only thing they're going to remember is, oh, I messed up. Instead, the power of vagueness, right? Where you want to go, why? Walk away. Just walk away after that. Just let it be. And it'll, like, if it's the right way and if it's the right people, it'll get back on path is how I look at it now. Naka, was that your first restaurant? Naka. Tell us about Naka. Naka was a uh, kaiseki cuisine. I trained in Japan to go do a little bit more than sushi and learn something I've never learned before. Coming back to the States, I, you know, I picked up a job over here and obviously... When I introduced myself as a Japanese chef, everyone said California rolls, spicy tuna rolls. Is that what you do? And I totally get it. That's what the whole message was. But there was this big part of me that just was like, there's so much beauty in Japanese cuisine. And that turned into a strong mission of mine of, I want to convey Japanese culture through food in a way it never has been yet from, it's not just sushi. There's these beautiful braised vegetables, the way we do it, to how we incorporate umami into different 
you know, and this was like 2015. So it was before the whole trend of umami and everyone talking about it. So that was a big mission of mine at the time of like, I want to convey Japanese culture and Japanese food. And I did kaiseki cuisine and the two options were a 10 course or a 15 course menu. And we changed that every single day. I had fishermen coming to the restaurant. I had mushroom guys literally opening the truck and I'm there. But at the same time, I was there from 7 a.m. prepping every single day and then doing payroll and all the admin scheduling in front of the house, especially in the beginning. And then, you know, I'm there till 2 o'clock. I drink till maybe 4 o'clock, sleep for three hours, and I'm back in the restaurant. And I did that every single day. But I was able to do that because I was 25, too. So then you transformed Naka into Adana? Madonna, about a year and a half in. Did it do pretty well, though, for that year and a half? Did people get it? The hard part of it, we didn't have any talk wasn't out or pre-ticketing system wasn't a thing yet in 2015. There was only open table. Even finer dining restaurants didn't really have a ticketing system back in the day. So that was the hard part, right? I prepped for a certain amount and there were a lot of tables that would come in on a Friday and go, wait, you guys don't have a California roll and just stand up and get out. And that was a big part of the clientele just because it was a Japanese restaurant. I took it extremely personally at the time when I was younger. I was a 25-year-old kid who was just like, why don't you understand my culture? Thoughtful thinking. Great quote to know now. (laughs) Or wishful thinking, right? But yeah, that was the hard part. And then honestly, after a year and a half, I was burnt. And why I was burnt was, number one, the check average was way too high in Seattle. Fine dining in Seattle in 2015 was $50, $60. And then I came out with 125 to 175 starting point. And one thing I do think it was one of the best lessons for myself because I do think I did some incredible food there, but restaurants are created by the guests. And if I can't have returning guests that create that atmosphere, they go, hey, what's up, Stacy? I like that sake you brought me last time. What do you got in house today? Hey, shout out. What do you got? You know, that's what makes a restaurant. And I really wanted that. So I dropped the price point. I still wanted to do my style and learn more. So I dropped the price point and did a three, five, seven course so we can get more regulars. And our three and five course changed on only a monthly basis. So it's a little bit easier. And then our seven course changed on a daily to weekly. That was Adana? Adana. You switched. Okay. Yeah. And Adana means nickname. Oh. Interesting. It's like, I don't know what I should name it. I should just give it a nickname. Adana sounds perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And that's closed now. But I have to imagine transforming a restaurant isn't like necessarily easy, but a new concept or transforming it gives you something exciting, something to look forward to, whereas just like flat out closing a place sucks. Will you ever go back to Kaiseki? or fine dining? I want to. I think that's the next maybe piece of the conversation of what my goals are now. You know, hospitality-wise, the hard part about fine dining was I couldn't pay people. It's very hard to actually make a bottom line. So right now, I my goal right now is getting all my managers to six digits. And to do that, it's really learning about franchising. I started doing retail business. When I wrote my PNL, when I reopened, I wrote manager budgets first. That was the first thing I wrote down as a number. And I built around it. So my revenue, I was just like, I don't know how I'm going to hit this number, but I'm going to figure out how to hit this number. Being in the food business, if I put my effort in, there's a way that I can do it because there's people that make things happen. So that was like the stubborn mindset that I still have. And I'm glad I have it because it's, I'm, I would say I'm halfway there now. So with that said, I want to, that's more of a passion for me and being able to eventually go, Hey guys, this is what I did. I included profit share. This is how much money I'm making. This is a great example for you guys to follow in the restaurant industry to how to do this and take care of yourself because In this day and world, especially a city like Seattle, if you're in your 30s and if you're not making six digits, you don't have a plan in your 50s, which means 
I'm not doing anything for you. And I want to change that. My thing is right now I want to do this franchise, learn about the business side. I love the food, the cooking stuff. That's why I do the private dinners here and there. But eventually the whole dream is sell everything and go do that little tiny thing. Open three days a week for like three months out of the year. Yeah. <laughs> Forge the rest. Yes. Okay. So I've read you, you say you carry Japan on your back. And so you did the fine dining Kaiseki based on your training. And now I feel like you're having fun. Like you're having, not that you weren't having fun, but I feel like you're having fun with your places and your food now. Will you bring us up to speed on Taku and Kobo? Is that, am I pronouncing Kobo? Kobo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tell us about Taku those. is a chicken karaage, which is soy sauce marinated with ginger flavor that's potato starched and fried. And it's one of those snacks that you'll go to any gas station in Japan and they'll have it. Your mom, it's usually every boy's favorite food. It's that soy ginger flavor profile. We changed ours a little bit. We do shiokoji and ginger instead of soy sauce. Number one, with the quantity we're doing, because we're going through about 400 to 500 pounds of chicken a day right now. And this is a 1500 square foot tiny little box it's extremely hard to keep consistency and koji was one of those you know koji helps the brining it helps the it breaks down that fiber in the right way already that even if you cook it a little extra it doesn't get chewy because the fibers are set so we changed it to that and on top of it it made it gluten-free we weren't using flour on the starch anyways that's what we have is the fried chicken bunch of different flavors from furikake to koji hot sauce like frank's hot sauce fun little renditions there a bunch bunch of different sauces and little tiny izakaya sides like potato mochi which is a classic japanese dish that i grew up eating forgot about it and then i was playing a pokemon game and they had that snack come on the screen it's a real thing all the nerds listening right now are like <laughs> oh rcs don't worry about it i got you <laughs> uh, that's amazing so yeah adding things like that on the menu and having fun Kobo is a Detroit-style pizza, I would say inspired. Why I say inspired is because I had my little twist on it. And, you know, authenticity doesn't make sense, but don't want to fight it. So I'm going to say inspired. <laughs> I use a little bit. We do a small percentage of mochi flour in the dough. So it has that. It's a big thing in Japan that in Japanese pizzerias right now that a lot of people are doing. Using mochi yeah. flour in, in the dough? A little bit. Yeah, just a little bit to kind of add that chew and extra crunch, and it holds crunchier, too. That sounds good. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. And then we add koji buttermilk. And what happened there is actually really interesting. I think it's the sweetness from the rice and the umami and the buttermilk. When it comes out of the oven on a pre-bake, it smells like those Japanese shokpan, the milk breads. It's incredible. It's great. That sounds good, man. That sounds really good. All right, I want to take a quick second to give some love to our friends at Graduate Hotels. One of Graduate's U.S. locations is in Seattle, where today's guest, Chef Shoda, happens to be from. It's a pretty beautiful one. They have a food and beverage concept in Graduate Seattle called the Mountaineering Club, which is a rooftop bar, and it has some of the best views in Seattle. And they partnered with Mark Rose and Meta Brew from Call Mom, the guys behind some various L.A. hotspots. Each graduate hotel has a unique design inspired by its local college, which is pretty awesome. So think various campus legends, the town's history, you know, Dolly Parton artwork in Nashville location, an exact replica of Michael Jordan's University of North Carolina dorm room in their Chapel Hill location, and well, the good old Huskies and University of Washington in Seattle. They have a UK presence, as you may have heard in our episode with Chef Yotem Adolengi earlier this season. And last and certainly not least, props to our friends at Graduate as they become incredible partners to the communities they're located in. 
They hold food drives, holiday events. They donate proceeds of happenings to local charities and provide meaningful career opportunities to both students and locals. To learn more about Graduate Hotels, go to graduatehotels.com and follow them on Instagram at Graduate Hotels. Graduate, we thank you. Dude, have you been to Graduate Seattle Hotel? I don't think I have. I need to go visit. You do. It's super cool. They have this awesome rooftop I was mentioning called the Mountaineering Club. It has sick views. And their hotel coffee shop, Poindexter, is very solid too. Anyhow, back to Chef Life. So I want to talk about timing because it was quite interesting with you having to close your restaurants and Top Chef coming into your life. And I read that you had some doubts about Top Chef. Is that right? I don't know if it's doubts, but I grew up in a very Japanese household. My mom rented Japanese TV or family or relatives would send it. So I never got exposed to American TV. I've never heard of Top Chef until they actually asked me a few times. You know, they I think they asked me like four years in a row, but I just never knew what it was. So I was like, I don't have. I don't know. I can't leave for five weeks. That's a lot. You're not going to pay me. No, I can't do that. And that was kind of the thing. But obviously, during the pandemic, I was in such a big hole with opening a bar, closing the other one, and they didn't really have a solid plan. Top Chef called me at the time. and They're like, hey, so you want to compete? And I was like, what's the grand prize? I remember this specifically. I was like, so what's the grand prize? They said a quarter million dollars. And I went, so if I win, you're going to give me a quarter million dollars in cash right now. And, you know, I'm in debt. So I'm like, heard okay they're like yes and i said i'll be there (laughs) and then i looked up what top chef was and i was like oh wow this is a lot that's funny afterwards after i said yes to it you glad you did it i'm so glad i did it number one to start with i got to cook with 13 of the most amazing people in the kitchen and i was a trier i spooned everyone's sauce everyone's food i didn't care when producers were like all right get out of this filming stage we're going to go do this. I'm like, last few bites everywhere. Really, I had so much fun trying everyone's food and learn an incredible amount. I think I grew as a chef as well. I think that pressure is, you don't really see it through TV, but it is, it's almost this pressure that like breaks you down into so many different pieces and puts you back together. And while that's happening, you really figure out your cooking style, what you like to cook. And I feel like I found something of, okay, cool. Now, even after years of running my own restaurant, I was like, okay, cool. I feel this energy. I feel this growth. Now it's clicking more. Everything's clicking more. I saw that. You had said you learned a lot about your strengths and your weaknesses. That's cool how that comes about. How do you work through your weaknesses? How do I work through my weaknesses? I try to embrace it. I would say probably my biggest personality trait is I'm never scared at failing. I'm never scared at making mistakes and I will consistently keep trying. And it's that mindset of, I'm going to keep trying. If there's that one basket I need to put a ball in and someone next to me throws two and goes, oh, cool. I've already thrown 15. I got two in there, dude. That's my mindset that I have. Yeah, I like that. Where do you find inspiration in your cooking? In the moment, honestly. Or is there a specific chef or someone that like inspires you? I think everyone inspires me chef-wise, especially the more different the cuisine is. One person that comes to my mind right now is Stephanie Izard. I love her food. She plays with flavors and ingredients in such a unique way. And my core is very Japanese, but I think I've tried to mimic that style with the base of Japanese a lot, if that makes sense. Of adding smoked blueberries and blah and making it work for the acidic component. Cool. I'm going to use cedar and yuzu juice instead of what she would use because that's more Japanese and it makes sense for this. And like my dish kind of gets created. But yeah, I'd say people like that give me a lot of inspiration. It's funny because I was texting with 
Brooke Williamson earlier. I wasn't going to include this, but she was saying your inherent knowledge about food and ingredients and things that go together is so good. And you put things together that someone wouldn't necessarily think goes together, but you taste it and it's like, so you. That's so sweet of her. I, she's, I, she's one of my favorite people. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> Speaking of Steph, though, I saw you were in, were you in Chicago recently? Yeah, I cooked with her last weekend and then three weekends ago. Yeah. With her and Joe. And Joe, Plant. yeah. And it was a dinner for World Central Kitchen that she put up. Any good food while you were here? Did you just eat at all of Steph's and Joe's spots? You could hit all their spots, like walking around a few blocks there. I've hit all of Steph's spot before. So this time I hit up Joe's Rosemary. Incredible. The first time I went there, it's so good. Uh, but Chicago is definitely a town that I really need to check out. It's definitely my top three food cities in America. I'd say probably top five in the world, for sure. Chicago, it's got such a unique energy to it. I love the camaraderie between the actual industry people. There's a little competitiveness, but a lot of love that overpowers the competitiveness, which is it's a very refreshing thing to see coming from Seattle. <laughs> you started to talk about this dinner that you cooked, that Steph and Joe and you cooked for World Central Kitchen. And it's a perfect segue into social impact. I mentioned this a little bit before we started recording that we like to celebrate social impact with all of our guests, whether they're a bartender, chef, restaurateur, and how they do it truthfully keeps all of us inspired to keep going with this podcast. And you all do it in your own way, quite frankly. But I would love for you to touch upon any causes or charities, you know, you work with, and you could start with something like that dinner or anything else that you do. I would say World Central Kitchen is a big one I work with. I do a lot of pop-up collabs in Seattle and sometimes out of town as well. But that's usually, you know, inviting a lot of my top chef friends or out of top chef friends and doing a big dinner. Last time, I think we did two nights of 200 people, seven courses. And it's such an incredible night. And on top of it, you know, I make sure I pay all the chefs and go, hey, it's a charity dinner, but your time is valuable. And this is what your value is. And I hand them a check. I do that to all the dishwashers as well. It's a charity dinner. But still, this is your money because this is how much you're worth. Good for you, man. And on top of it, we were still going to donate $25,000 to World Central Kitchen from each night. So I think that's my contribution of sharing financials with industry friends of how, how you can actually make money for yourself for events, pay everyone very fairly, and donate a lot of money on top of it. So that way, when people are asking, my friends are asked to do things, they know what they can ask for. And you pay your electricians pay your lawyers and you got to pay the people who are there actually helping you right now too. I like that. I think so much you guys can do a different event every night of the week or multiple pisses me off and I have to stop letting it piss me off when people are like, Hey, can you think this chef will donate a dinner for four or come cook at this person's house? I'm like, yo, do you call a clothing store and be like, can you donate 10 pairs of jeans? I don't know, but I like your point of view. You're inviting friends, you're doing good, you're rewarding them slash compensating them for their time, their value, while being able to give back to someone like World Central Kitchen as well. That's cool. You know, this industry is getting really hard too, so I just want to make sure that I want to really try to put my voice out there and everyone's got to value themselves more because without it, we're going to run out of line cooks and chefs. It's my thought process. And if we can teach, I'm not going to say which foundations and groups, but like if you have a big name as a foundation or group and you're asking chefs to do dinners for 50, 60 people and you're only going to pay them a thousand dollars, 
they're only going to teach their next generation and line cooks that they're not valuable as well. So we need to really, every opportunity we have to teach chefs, most of us aren't high school graduates, most of us aren't educated, but we have big dreams and good ambitions and a good heart. And I want to try to teach as many people how to be smart and fair about it. It's not being greedy, it's taking care of yourself and your team. That's really the bottom line. I like that. I don't think we've gone this direction, you know, per se for this part of the podcast, but I love it. And I think it's hugely important. Thanks for sharing that. Let's do a speed round and then wrap it up. Question one, what'd you have for dinner last night? Chicken and rice. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Brown butter and soy sauce. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. The trash when it's not taken out right away. (laughs) What pisses you off in the kitchen? When people are rude to each other. When people talk at each other, not to people. Mm. What makes you happy in the kitchen? When people are having a great time. Name a go-to snack in your pantry. Chili pickled bamboo shoots. Yum. So good, dude. I got to show you the brand. Yeah. show you the brand? I literally just eat this like it's nothing. But it's these, you know, like the bamboo shoots they have on top of ramen? Love them, yeah. It's that in chili oil, and it's so good, dude. Ooh, I got to find those. That sounds so good. Definitely recommended. Hell yeah. You got to get the green label with the camel on it. All right. I'm going to screenshot this <laughs> afterwards. Thanks for that. I love how they're like in arm's reach. When I was recording with Brooke, I was like, what's your go-to oh, yeah. snack? And she like reached forward, like under a computer. She's like these. I was like, oh, well, this <laughs> was these like snackling. That's funny. Ch- taro chips or something. It was pretty funny. Speaking of Brooke, we mentioned her earlier, a fellow Top Chef alum. She also said this about you. She said, when you meet him, you may think he's a little shy and reserved, but he winds up opening up and there's so many layers to Shoda and he's so kind and generous. That's so sweet of her. She's bummed. That's too sweet of her. <laughs> <laughs> I really like her. And I, I, I asked her so many questions, you know, after getting Top Chef, it, it was hard, honestly, you know, with media. And I just felt I was completely overwhelmed and getting a little anxious about a lot of things. And Brooke was one of those people who was never too busy. And I would be like, hey, do you have a moment to speak or whatnot? She'd be like, hey, I'm getting off at this time, so call me at this time. And if I do, I'll be able to talk to her and she'll be on the phone for like 30, 40 minutes if she has time. Being very helpful and a good mentor and as a business owner, and I feel like I've been working on my own for such a long time too, it was just refreshing to have that kind of conversation and communication and be able to have someone. So I don't know if she knows this, but like it, it helped out so much, especially during that time. That's cool. That's super cool. All right. I want to tie it all back to dad once again, because he says, I love this. Humble is handsome. Humble is handsome. So all humility aside, is there like a career moment you can brag about a little bit? or I would say right now, I think my biggest brag is that I have consistently worked hard for 18 years of my life and disciplined myself and I'm here. And I still do it every single day. And I do it with finesse and I do it while I'm being polite to everyone around me. I would say that's my biggest achievement. I'm proud of myself. Love it, dude. Awesome. Shoda, thanks for your time, man. This was super fun. Good luck with all the concepts. And I'm sure there's plenty more on your plate coming our way soon. That keeps me busy. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully I'll run into you one of these days and... Whether I'm out there in the Pacific Northwest or you come back to Chicago, I'd love to grab a bite or something or say what's up. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to yeah, connect if I next time I come to Chicago, just go eat at one of the beautiful restaurants yeah. that Chicago has many of. Awesome. Thanks, dude. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Chef Shoda Nakajima. Find him on Instagram at Chef Shoda. That's C-H-E-F-S-H-O-T-A. 
to learn more about World Central Kitchen, go to wck.org. We'll share a link to those websites in the episode notes and at beyondplaypodcast.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media on Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at btplatepodcast. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media producer is Sarah McClellan Mead. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. And as always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. If you do have a moment, we'd love and appreciate it if you could rate or review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, brought to you by our friends at Ford's Gin. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.